1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be interviewing Paddy Doherty about his book titled Blood and Bronze The British Empire and the Sack of Benin, published by Hearst in 2022, which is a really interesting book because, on the one hand, it examines a particular instance. Um, of British imperialism and quite violent British imperialism in West Africa, Um, but also helps us understand this particular set of events and history within the wider context of British imperialism, specifically in West Africa, but also then the impact and the kind of legacy it's had um, throughout the centuries until today, and brings together current events and history in a really helpful way to kind of add perspective on both aspects um, so I'm really excited to learn more about your work, work and share it with our audience. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Miranda, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Um, could you please start us off by introducing yourself a bit, your background, and explain why you chose to write this book?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, trained as, a, as an historian, particularly as a, a historian of empire. Um, in fact, I studied at Oxford under Professor John Darwin, who I I would regard as probably the leading uh, imperial historian of his generation although i'm not uh, completely objective um I, I my first book was uh, the khyber pass which really looked at the, the the interaction between india and the rest of the world through the khyber pass essentially for the whole of history um which was a a rather grand expansion of my uh, doctoral research, which was into the Northwest frontier. Uh, But then over the years, I became more interested, particularly in Africa, um, and looked at a number of instances of British expansion into Africa. But the particular reason that I, I came to write about the Benin Bronzes and the invasion of the Kingdom of Benin was because of a visit to the British Museum about 15 years ago now, and I went to see them, in fact, for the first time, and I found the museum signage to be very interesting. I don't know if you've seen the British Museum signage for the Berlin Bronzes, but, the, of course, they don't lie. I mean, it's factual, but it leaves a great deal out. So they admit to the colonial violence behind the presence of the Benin Bronzes in Britain, but they don't then go on to explain, explain that or to follow the implications of that in terms of what it means for uh, you know the repatriation debate and so on. So I then went to look more into uh, the Benin Bronzes, and I... Was really shocked to find that there wasn't readily available a an authoritative history of the invasion of Benin, so I decided that I would write it, and it it took me some years to get around to doing it, but um, that that was how Blood and Bronze came about.
1: That's um, th- I think that's a good introduction because it kind of brings us into uh, some of the questions that I'm going to be asking you about. Um, and first off is kind of about this process, right? The, I'm assuming that one of the reasons that this book took a while to research um, is because of something that you actually discuss in the book, that it's really hard to research this history, given that we kind of only have the writings of one side of the conflict. And that particular side has had a lot of interests in making sure that there is the only side that goes forward, So how do you kind of deal with that from a methodological point of view?
0: Yes, that that was a a particular challenge, yeah. I mean, just a side note, it it was actually more that I was distracted by other things in my life and going off and doing some rather quixotic projects that um, took took the time. But when I did come to uh, focus on this, you're right, of course, in that the British side is easy to access. That's not to say that it has often been accessed. I mean, I would say the materials in the National Archives are somewhat neglected. I mean, they're there and readily available. Of course, there's a multitude of uh, documents from the Foreign Office and the Admiralty and and so on uh, just sitting there. But, of course, I would say they have been rather neglected. But, yes, of course, the, the biggest challenge is in... Um, recovering or, or recreating the Benin side, given that Benin, like many other uh, areas in Africa at this time uh, in the, the late 19th century, was a pre-literate society. Of course, had no uh, no written records, no publishing cultures, and so on. And that means that the only well, there are only a handful of ways into the Benin side. Uh, Of course, there is oral tradition, um, which obviously presents certain challenges. There is the um, the the record of the bronzes themselves. Uh, I mean, of course, the the, one of the most famous of the uh, groups of the Benin bronzes are, in fact, the 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 brass plaques. You know, the very well known brass plaques, which once uh, adorned the Oba's palace in Benin, and they record in in there are several hundred of these plaques, and they record much of Benin history in, of course, a you know very graphical artistic format, which requires a great deal of interpretation and and so on to extract any history out of it. But but it is besides covering. Uh, myth and legend, and and uh, you know, a great many fantastical beings, and so on. It, it does contain a record of history. Um, so that that's you know one of the the ways of trying to to recapture the Benin side, and then and then of course there is the you know archaeological and and linguistic uh, sources as well. But but you're right in highlighting that big difficulty of the profound epistemological imbalance uh, in in what most historians would regard as the gold standard of evidence. That's to say, you know, a richly stocked bureaucratic record um, full of government documents, you know. Um, And I certainly found some notable cases of abuse of that Epistemological brute force. Um, I, I, I don't know if you recall Chapter Four of Blood and Bronze, where I write about a a, 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 a British consul called George Ainsley, who is essentially unknown. I mean, in, in terms of you know the general perception, he, he's essentially unknown. Whereas, in fact, he should be famous for his wrongdoing. You know, he should be a a famous exemplar of colonial wrongdoing because of the atrocious uh, reign of terror that he conducted in what was then the Niger Coast Protectorate uh, between the the end of 1889 and the beginning, well, the the middle of 1891. Um, And he, he ran a Reign of Terror, where he um, launched all kinds of military attacks on villages, uh, burnt down numerous houses of local people, attacked villages and burnt down villages. Uh, and even there was one case recorded in the documents where he, um, it's a, its a atrocious story, um, where he organized... a a gang rape of a local woman. Truly, truly a horrible incident. And we know about it because it was subsequently investigated by British officials. But what was most shocking was that even though they had a bulging file full of sworn statements from witnesses a uh, very carefully compiled um, materials uh, put together by Vice-Consul Roberts. Even though that detailed record of Ainsley's wrongdoing existed, the British officials in the Foreign Office, they decided to retire Ainsley quietly and give him a pension rather than see him punished and prosecuted and risk, uh, you know, the, the reputation of the British Empire.
1: So, that's a really, that's a really important example of, as you said, both the, like, p- the changing of the record, but also an insight into what was actually happening in these practices and how incredibly one-sided not just the record is, but also the actions that were taken and clearly allowed. <sighs>
0: Yes, absolutely. Because the the imbalance of force, access to force, was also extreme, of course. And 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 we do see in in the eighteen eighties into the eighteen nineties, we do see that shift in terms of the the balance of power between the Brits on the ground and the local people. We we actually do see that shift. Like, take for example, in in the eighteen sixties in the eighteen seventies as Britain was gradually becoming more committed to uh, this area, I mean, to the the Niger Delta region, um, as it was being gradually drawn more on land, we see a shift in power. Uh, We see a shift in the capacity of the, the British officials to exercise force. Whereas... At an earlier stage, you know, let's say in sort of eighteen sixties into the eighteen seventies, the British consul in the region has access to force and that he can call on you know Royal Navy gunboats. He can, you know, with some effort he can summon military force. But it's at some distance, you know, so he is he's in a, a slightly more delicate um relationship with local powers where it's more about him um talking his way into getting what he wants uh, and then certainly by the uh, the late 1880s and definitely into the 1890s we see a much more one-sided uh relationship where all the the weight of force is on the side of the British and and certainly of course by the the time of the invasion of benin in 1897 the the conduct of that campaign was essentially a matter of logistics you know i mean there was no question of the ultimate outcome you know it was more about how the the british forces could effectively Uh, organize their transport and communications to, you know, to to get to Benin and back before too many of them started um, dropping with malaria.
1: So let's, before we get into more of the details of this, um, because I think it is really interesting and also indicative, um, let's sort of look at the bigger picture, uh, because you do uh, frame this in your book quite helpfully, why kind of what were the British doing in this area um, before we get to the point of the invasion um, and why and why and how did their goals sort of change? Um, because it's not like they suddenly turn off in the 1890s. Um, British colonialism has been a thing in West Africa. So why does it suddenly go, okay, actually violent invasion, that's really what we want now?
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, you're, and you're, you're absolutely right in the, I I felt it was crucially important to put all of that context in the book, precisely so that one can evaluate the invasion of Benin in that context, rather than in the way that too many empire apologists want us to evaluate it, which is as if the uh, invasion of Benin is in fact uh, a justifiable response to the uh, the death of James Phillips and and his party at the very beginning of eighteen ninety seven. You know that's how it's typically presented. You know in in um, recent decades. You know going back some way, it's presented as a response to the the death of a British official. And as if it is therefore somehow justified. So what I felt was essential was to properly explain why this British official was knocking about, you know, in eighteen ninety-seven. You know why he came to be there, um, and that I felt that that context is all essential to properly judge the moral claims that empire nostalgists. Uh, still make you know which is the well there were good things about empire we were there spreading civilization etc etc you know we we have to uh, evaluate the the presence of the Niger coast protectorate which is the 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 entity within the British empire that invaded uh, the kingdom of Benin we have to um, examine the moral claims that were being made for the existence of the British presence in West Africa, I felt. And, of course, for many centuries, in fact, the principal reason for the British interest in West Africa was, frankly, a slave trade. Of course, as all too many British people seem happy to forget that Britain was... Uh, for quite some time, the number one slave trading nation. Uh, so our original sin in West Africa was, of, of course, the slave trade. Uh, and then from the early nineteenth century, when Britain finally got around to outlawing the the trade in slaves, although not the uh, not the institution of slavery itself in eighteen o seven, from that point onwards there is a switch to the so-called legitimate trade which essentially means palm oil so from the same areas from which slaves had been uh, kidnapped uh, in previous decades the the same companies and the same middlemen on shore and you know the, the, essentially the slave industry switches over pretty swiftly to palm oil and for Quite a few decades, you know, the, the first half of the nineteenth uh, century, the the principal British interest in the Niger Delta was extracting palm oil, and for much of that time, well, for most of the the first half of the nineteenth century, Britain was able to do that satisfactorily, I mean, i.e. In, it, it, profitably, without going to the trouble and expense of formal rule you know um, it was able to because of its naval strength because of the uh, you know the, the competitive uh, position of its companies and and so on Britain was able to to get what it wanted out of the Niger Delta without really uh, going on shore much that changed from the well, especially from the uh, 1870s onwards, but even as early as the 1850s, there was increasing uh, rivalry with other European powers, with with the commercial firms from from France and then gradually from Germany, uh, as well as other powers, the Belgians and so on. Um, and so it was really a a, a reflection of growing European rivalry and at the same time frankly growing british weakness that that led eventually to of course the the famous uh, scramble for africa the the central event of which was uh, of course the, the the conference in berlin uh, in late 1884 into early 1885 and the mere fact that the conference of berlin happened is a striking illustration of British weakness, you know, you know, an illustration of British decline, because this meant that Britain was turning up to a conference called, of course, by another power, it was called by Bismarck, and that meant that Britain was turning up to plead its case. Uh, Britain turned up with a with an agenda to make a a claim as the the paramount power on the Niger River, that was its agenda. If you look at the, the Foreign Office documentation in, a, in, the, in uh, advance of the, uh, the conference, that's the key point of discussion. How, how can we most effectively demonstrate our, uh, our claim to be the, the, uh, the, the dominant power on the Niger River? But of course, thirty years before that, it would have been unthinkable that Britain would have to go to a conference and and meet other powers as an equal and plead its case. You know, so it's it's quite a striking illustration of um, British decline.
1: So, how then does this lead to kind of the fact that Britain has to stake its claim in some sort of way? Um, but obviously, they've been there for a while. There's quite a lot of economic claim. How does this then translate into the need for military action?
0: Yes. So one of the big outcomes of the the Congress, the the, the Conference of Berlin, was this principle of um, effective occupation. So Britain felt, in the wake of the Berlin Conference, it felt that it had to establish. A claim, a formal claim on the Niger Delta and, the, and, and the, the, the Niger River. So it declared a protectorate. In 1885, it declared a protectorate over the Niger, well, it, in fact, what we now know as Nigeria. Um, but the principle of effective occupation, which came out of the Berlin Conference, meant that the, the mere declaration of a protectorate was no longer enough. It, it had to be embodied in some way, meaning um, boots on the ground in some form. So the the principle of effective occupation was left helpfully vague in Berlin. You know, so countries could interpret it however they felt best. but it, it meant that Britain had to uh, had, had to make it a reality in some way otherwise they would risk losing out to to the to the French or to the Germans um, as they grew in capacities around West Africa so that was one of the, the factors drawing Britain uh, on land and inland uh, it, it it was obliged to, to to show boots on the ground essentially
1: right and that makes unfortunately rather a lot of sense Um. So then moving, obviously, because you can't have a conflict without at least two sides. So (laughs) at this point, um, tell us about the kingdom of Benin, sort of how they were governed, um, and particularly sort of we've already talked about the bronzes, um, and there's quite a lot of religious and political symbolism sort of wrapped up in the bronzes, or at least documented in the bronzes, structures that existed. Um, So tell us a little bit about this kingdom at this point in time.
0: Sure. If I may just say, first of all, that the the initial british engagement with uh the polities on shore w- was with the series of uh, city-states and and small chieftains and kingdoms along the the Niger delta uh, the coastal area so with um Al-Calabar, with opobo with with brass and so on um so the the british engagement with um with these polities happened first, and it was only once they were essentially once they were properly integrated into the British system, which is a polite way of saying effectively conquered. Uh it was only once the, the coastal regions had been absorbed into the, the British system um, effectively that the British then were looking into the interior. And it was quite obvious that the only remaining significant rival center of power was the Kingdom of Benin. And of course, the Kingdom of Benin was very old. It had been, uh, I mean, obviously, different uh, authorities will have a different view on precise timing and so on. But it had been uh, in existence certainly for uh, between four and 500 years. I mean, the, the earliest bronzes date to the 15th century um some of the brass plaques were cast from certainly in the uh, 16th century and into the 17th century and the high point of brass casting uh, was probably in the uh, in the early 17th century so th- this is a very old established kingdom it it was no longer as powerful as it had been i mean it it had shrunk in Uh, in its claims of exercising power over even up to the the coastal regions of uh, the lower Benin River, um, even over um, brass and and other chiefdoms and and kingdoms that had since become independent. So it was no longer as powerful as it had been, but this is a a very firmly established, uh, very old kingdom and very old kingship um which had once been an imperial power itself um and had been through you know several cycles of civil war and so on so it was no longer as powerful but was still easily the most significant uh, rival power in what is now southern nigeria so that meant for the british it was an an obvious obstacle and the logic of empire meant that it would have to be absorbed into the British system uh, otherwise the British would no longer be able to show the effective occupation that they needed to so having declared a protectorate over uh, the region which as far as they were concerned as far as the British were concerned included the kingdom of Benin in you know it, I mean it didn't mean anything on the ground but it, in, in their minds, the protectorate declared in 1885 included the Kingdom of Benin, um, inevitably, at some point, that would have to be made into a, in, into a reality. So, in 89- 1890,
1: so, so then tell us about there is this logic, but there is there has to be some kind of pretext or attempted justification. And you mentioned at the beginning that that justification is often presented without context. But what actually was it?
0: Yeah. So in 1892, a mission visits Benin City. This is under a captain at the time, Captain Galway, who is a, a British officer, I mean, an army officer, but he's serving as a vice consul in the, in the reorganized Niger Coast protectorate. And he is sent up the Benin River um, to Benin City, where he meets with Oban Ob- Ramwin. And he signs a treaty, <laughs> which is, I mean, I can't help laughing when I think about this treaty because this is literally a pro forma treaty. I mean, it's a form that was pre-printed and had. This is the, the standard form that uh, British officials would would use around the uh, the Niger Coast Protectorate with any chief or king that they encountered, they would pull out this form, and the British official would simply write in the name of the chief or king, uh, the name of his chieftain or kingdom, and then get them to sign it. I mean, it was a, a completely standard, pre-printed form. Um, now, obviously, to be regarded as genuine, surely... Uh, a, a treaty ought to be the outcome of negotiation and reflect the interests and preferences of both sides. In a treaty which is simply a pro forma treaty, I think you know one has to be sceptical about whether it accurately uh, reflects the interests and preferences of both sides. To put it mildly, um, and also in the the treaty signed between Captain Galway. And the Ober of Benin in 1892, it's striking that there are four people and three languages involved in what is supposedly a, a negotiation between Captain Galway and the Ober of Benin. So Captain Galway spoke to his, would you believe, his manservant, Ajayi, in English. Ajayi spoke to a, a Benin official. In, in Yoruba, in Akuri, which is a, a dialect of Yoruba. And then the Benin officials spoke to the king in Edo, the language of the kingdom of Benin. So that, that meant there were four people in three languages involved, meaning, surely, enormous scope for misunderstanding or you know, failure to adequately communicate the intricacies of you know, terms of the treaty and so on. And also, significantly, if you look at the, the treaty itself, I mean, of course, I've seen the the original. We see from his sworn statement, which is the standard statement that um, interpreters would add to these treaties, uh, they would write a sentence saying, I promise I have interpreted this um, accurately. And we can see from that sentence that a J has signed with an X, meaning, of course, that he was illiterate. Now, that's not unusual in, in, in the context, but it does mean that clearly he's not an educated person, perhaps not there therefore armed adequately with you know, the understanding of European diplomacy and what the British actually meant by the words like you know, protectorate and so on. So the, this treaty that they signed, it's full of problems. Um, and it's quite likely, I think, that Ober Oberammerin signed this piece of paper under the impression that it was something more like a, a treaty of friendship, you know, a, 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 an agreement to be nice to each other, rather than what the British understood this treaty to mean, which was essentially that he was handing over his kingdom. So the way the, the, the British worked at the time was that once they had secured this uh, piece of paper, as far as they were concerned, the Kingdom of Benin was part of the British Empire. And that meant that uh, British uh, commerce would have free access to uh, the, the Benin markets, you know, the i.e. without paying duty, you know, without paying tolls, etc. Uh, and of course, that was the key goal you know to to extract economic advantage from the wealthy territory of the kingdom of benin so that's the sort of justification that the british have always in their back pocket uh, and whenever they have a problem with uh, the the kingdom of benin not giving free access to british traders and, and so on this is the piece of paper that they can wave around um, and use to threaten uh, an invasion or threaten some kind of um, violent action against the king so that interior penetration that forward movement was going to happen at some point point. Um, and i mean that not that that misunderstanding i think between the king and the british officials notwithstanding, it was going to happen at some point that the British would have to make that forward movement to absorb the Kingdom of Benin more firmly in its um, economic orbit. But the eventual timing was, in fact, a a matter of accident. And, And the timing was really determined by Consul James Phillips blundering his way uh, to an early death by visiting the, the city of, or, or attempting to visit the city of Benin without permission. So it was really it, it was really an accident that determined the, the, the eventual timing.
1: And some of the elements of this accident are just really quite hard to wrap my head around. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to sort of explain them, because as I understand it, he was a relatively minor official. Well, he, he was an official, but he wasn't necessarily the person in charge. Um, And he decides to go visit the city that has already been established amongst British officialdom that there is a particular procedure one follows to visit the city. You have to wait for permission. It takes a few days, etc. Like, this isn't the first time this has happened. And, in fact, on his way there, he gets warnings that, hey, this is the procedure. Remember? This is what you need to do. Um, Multiple warnings. So, and yet he... and, And then threats... And yet he continues anyway. And again, there's no, and there doesn't seem to be any particular like desperate need that he has to get to the city on this day for some reason. So why in the face of completely united opposition, including from some of his own people who are like, this isn't how we do things. um, Why does this Phillips persist?
0: Absolutely. Into
1: an early grave.
0: Absolutely. This was a, a fascinating Area to look at in and, and reconstructing those couple, those sort of few weeks where all of this was happening, putting all that together was abs- a fascinating process because it is, on the face of it, it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's so absurd. So, the way, the way it happened was that um, Phillips, in the, the summer of 1896, is appointed as deputy commissioner. Uh, and uh, I mean, he's essentially appointed as the the new deputy to the consul general. So he's intended to be uh, the number two in the the Niger Coast Protectorate. Um, who uh, and you know he's there really to cover the absences of the consul general during periods of leave or or whatever. So he arrives in uh, the uh, the protectorate would you believe, on October the 21st and then writes a a despatch to London on November the 16th asking for permission to invade the Kingdom of Benin. I mean, which is just deranged. I mean, he'd been in the protectorate for three weeks, had not visited Benin and yet he was... Already decided on invading the uh, <laughs> invading the kingdom and deposing the king. I mean, it, it's unhinged. I and will we'll, I'll come to why he may have reached that conclusion in a moment, if I may. But just the, firstly, the sequence of events is that he wrote this despatch, and of course, despatches travel by steamship. Uh, in 1897, you know, they uh, sorry, 1896, they, you know, it takes about three weeks or so uh, to get to London and obviously it has to, you know, a reply has to get back, etc. So by the end of December, he still hasn't received a, a reply from London. So he decided to visit Benin with an unarmed mission. So he hadn't I, I think his thinking was clearly that, well, I haven't got permission to launch an invasion, so why don't I go and visit with an unarmed expedition? So he, he puts together an expedition and, and sets off at the end of uh, December 1896. And, and of course, he has to sail around the Delta and, and so on and so forth. So it, it's um, it's the early... It's the first week of January before he gets to, um, uh, to to the Benin River and goes up to Guato Cuit. Uh, and then from Guato, he's, he starts marching off to visit Benin. Uh, and it's there, just outside Guato, that he is ambushed by uh, Benin armed forces. And he and most of... Um, Well, in fact, seven members of seven British officials are are killed, along with an unknown number of carriers, probably something in the region of about two hundred carriers. Now, all the way from Old Calabar to Guato, as we mentioned, everybody was telling Phillips not to go. He had messengers from the OBA saying, you know, I can't see you now because I'm conducting ritual obligations for my father. So, you know, you please come in X number of weeks, you know, come, come in two months time, something like that. His own staff, you know, are saying, you know, don't go. This is not how things should be done. You know, we need permission. We, um, we should wait for a while and, and go when the king says it's okay. And, you know, um, and then local chiefs, so the um, Itzikiri chiefs who are uh, working with the British, they are also saying, don't go. And in fact, one of them tells Phillips straight out, don't go, it will be certain death. But Phillips ignores all of these um, and insists on continuing, which of course, as you say, makes us ask. Why? You know, why on earth would he would he insist on doing this when it's obviously going to be a failure? Um, my conclusion, finally, was that he wanted the mission to fail because if he was turned back by the Benin officials in the British mindset of the time, especially because Benin had signed this ridiculous treaty, if he had been turned back, that would have been the perfect rationale for an invasion. And and he would force London's hand by obliging them to give him permission to invade the country. So he, I, I think he was clearly expecting the, uh, the visit to fail. It's just he wasn't expecting to be killed. You know, he was expecting to be turned away.
1: But... Makes some sense. I still think he's perhaps not the cleverest diplomat, um, but that does seem to be the general trend of who ended up getting posted to West Africa. Well,
0: but actually, what you've just touched on is, I think, the key to all of this. Because, I mean, I I think that that what I sketched out is clearly his, well, thinking to put it, to to use that word loosely. Um, But I think it's a key uh, point that. Phillips was in fact very dim. And I'm, I'm not, this isn't my assessment of him based on what I know about his behavior. I have hard documentary evidence that he was really quite dim. Um, and that is, um, I found, he, he went to Uppingham School, boarding school in the north of England. And I found it, well, there the, the, they have a school archivist who very helpfully gave me some quite remarkable materials from the school magazine that was published uh, in the in the wake of the, the the death of Phillips in January 1897 and of course this this is a school magazine trying its best to be nice about an old boy who had after all just as they see it died gloriously on the frontier of empire etc you know uh, but when they wrote a, an obituary for phillips it's quite shocking how how they damn him with faint praise you know they're trying their best to find something nice to say about him um but the best they can do sh- shall i read out just the, a, a couple of lines for what they say
1: yes please it definitely falls into the category of damning with faint praise
0: well it, it really does i mean i i just find it so extraordinary um but this this is an actual quotation from the um uppingham school magazine and and as i say they're trying to be nice about him but the best they can do is quote he was not head and shoulders above the rest of us in anything except perhaps that priceless thing which we call keenness he was not a first-rank scholar he was not a first-rank athlete he never wrote anything brilliant for this magazine. <laughs> and and the, the best they can find, that the highest praise that they can find for him was that he was, quote, a sportsman.
1: So exactly the person that you want charging in headfirst into a situation that requires a number of different skills, which we can tell from his own school, he did not have.
0: Ab- absolutely. I mean, he, he absolutely did not have, uh, you know, the reflection or, you know, the, the, the appreciation of subtleties to, you know, to think about, um, you know, how, 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 yes, exactly. but and... How things might actually work out. And I, I think it's, so I think his stupidity, frankly, was an important part of, um, of, of this, this whole fiasco. And particularly that Phillips arrived in the, the Niter uh, Coast Protectorate in the summer of 1896 into an atmosphere of forward movement. You know, the, the, the widely agreed mission of the officers of the protectorate was interior penetration you know that that's what they had absorbed as their raison d'etre
1: so he didn't need to create much momentum everything was going that way anyway
0: uh, no, uh, absolutely and i think given his lack of intelligence and and you know his desire to be you know one of the fellows you know one of the you know what he w- wanted to be on the team uh, you know, and as as um, his own school magazine said, you know, his his salient characteristic was his keenness. You know, <laughs> so you know if if his enthusiasm was his dominant characteristic, and you know, you you can just see how this all added up to him, you know, blundering his way into an early death. Because, of course, he it, it obviously didn't expect to be killed, but he felt. I gather from the way he wrote about this, and uh, you know everything that we know about him. I think he felt as if, as a, an officer of the empire, he could do whatever he wanted.
1: Right, you and know? there was an idea of he was purposely trying to be provocative, just not enough to get himself killed. which yes, I didn't mean, quite work.
0: Absolutely. I mean, he was clearly expecting to be turned back. Um, so, and just so
1: he then this obviously doesn't work. He he is killed. Um, on purpose. It's not like there's some sort of accident. Like he violates the rules, he is killed by it. Um, this is what really any polity would consider pretty reasonable. It's not like he wasn't warned. Um, but then, with this idea of forward movement of interior penetration, this is quite obviously a useful pretext for the British Empire to go. oh yeah, okay, we've been planning to do that anyway. Now let's go ahead and do it. Um, and as you talked about at the beginning. It really does become an exercise of logistics. The kind of final outcome, you know, whether or not the British will win this battle oh, is a foregone conclusion. Uh, but what
0: happens? Uh, absolutely, there's, there's no question that, of course, this will ultimately um, lead to a British victory. And um, the the way that the expedition came together is in itself extremely interesting. Because what I found quite remarkable about the, the documentation passing between the Admiralty and the, uh, the Foreign Office in particular um, in the wake of Phillips being killed, what I found really extraordinary about, about all of those discussions is that there was basically no discussion of strategy. There was no, there was no debate about, well, well, what is the aim of this expedition and it's really because this was so completely a, a a standard procedure for the brits at this time they didn't really need to discuss what the goal was because it was you know it was a routine operation and it was led of course by the uh, Africa squadron of the royal navy so the the man in charge of the expedition was admiral rawson or rear admiral rawson who was head of the uh, Africa squadron which is based in uh, south africa at the cape and his role in in the africa squadron was really as a, a, i call it a, a kind of imperial fire brigade so wherever around africa wherever Britain needed to call upon the use of violence, you know, to to subdue a troublesome, you know, uh, king or chief or whatever, they would call upon the Africa squadron, which would go to the scene of the uh, action and perform its standard task, which was typically uh, a, a punitive expedition. So it was completely standard. And in fact, we can see quite extraordinarily how how much of a routine operating procedure it was in that the general orders that Admiral Rawson prepared for the Benin punitive expedition were cut and paste, literally cut and paste from the Ashanti expedition uh, mounted in, uh, in of course, what is now Ghana um, by Wolseley in the 1870s. I mean, it's literally cut and paste. So, there's basically no real need to talk about what the goal of the expedition was. It was quite obviously to, you know, to, to proceed to uh, the capital city of the, the, what is now an enemy um, and absorb it more properly into the British, um, the British sphere. Of course, as we say, the, the task then is really more about logistics Um, than fighting and in fact quite remarkably the intelligence officer with the column the the, with the Benin punitive expedition the intelligence officer was a a chap called Commander Bacon a a Royal Navy officer called Commander Bacon Uh, in his reports quite remarkably he admits that they basically didn't see I mean didn't physically see enemy soldiers until Benin City because, of course, they're advancing through very dense uh, jungle, and given the imbalance between the forces, the Benin armed forces are limited essentially to attempting to ambush the advancing column. You know, so they're firing with their very antiquated muskets. I mean, literally muskets. You know, m- muzzle loading. Um, uh, uh, unrifled weapons dating literally from the 17th century. So they're limited to basically f- attempting to ambush the advancing British column with this very, very antique form of firepower. Uh, and given the the density of the the forest, Bacon says that they didn't see, they didn't set eyes on an enemy soldier until outside Benin City, which is quite remarkable, really.
1: And unfortunately, it might be very satisfying for the next chapter of the book to be, but they were all defeated and fought off. Um, But that is not, in fact, what happens. Um, And for all the arrogance of the cutting and pasting and lack of clear intelligence, um, it was a foregone conclusion militarily. And the British do successfully sack the city. Um, So what happens to the Kingdom of Benin after the capital city is destroyed?
0: Sure. So it takes them about, um, let me see. It takes nine days of marching to go from the base camp that they established just off the Benin River. Uh, they march north for about nine days, um, and, and take the city really very easily. Then the the city is burnt down. Um, they, it, it, in actual fact, the final conflagration. Where the palace, the 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 Oba's palace, burns down. That that was in fact an accident, and, and we know this be, um, for, for certain because quite remarkably, I found a, uh, a an expenses claim by Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, who was a, a British officer who had been sent out to command the uh, the Niger Coast Protectorate Force for the duration of the expedition. He had some of his belongings destroyed in the fire which um which broke out on the the 21st of february 1897 and i mean it's it's quite extraordinary that um the uh, what this expenses claim tells us about the the style of life that a a british army officer would expect while campaigning in the jungle in that. (laughs) <laughs> colonel, lieutenant colonel hamilton uh claimed for a camp bed an umbrella a cummerbund uh, he had silk and wool drawers and he had two pairs of pajamas so if you think of you know the 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 style of life that a, a british officer would expect on campaign it's it's quite remarkable anyway the the point is that that proves that the the palace was burnt down by accident. But of course, we also know that if it hadn't been burnt down by accident, it it would have uh, more. uh, Ralph Moore says he would have burnt it down. Anyway, so the city was destroyed. Of course, the biggest surprise for the, the British when they arrived in the city is the discovery of the Benin Bronzes. This was completely unexpected. They, immediately pack up all of the Benin bronzes, which, of course, the Benin bronzes is a, a, a catch-all term which also includes um, artworks made in, in other materials, in, you know, including, in a general sense, the, the ivory carvings and, and so on, and, and even some wooden pieces. So when they found this extraordinary treasure, uh, all these incredibly rich artworks, they packed them up, and you know they boxed them up and and simply took them home because they had been hoping to find ivory in the palace you know they had had vague rumors of lots of ivory being in the palace and their intention was to take the ivory and sell it as a way of defraying the cost of the invasion so the intention was that the invasion would pay for itself so they didn't find the ivory in volume but they found all these extraordinary artworks, so they packed them up, took them back to London, and uh, to auction them to raise money to to pay for the the invasion. Um, and then, in terms of what happened to the kingdom, of course, that meant that the the territory of the Kingdom of Benin had suddenly been f- fully absorbed into uh, British structures. The the British put a a new post, a, a vice consulate in in the, the ruins of Benin City. Um, the Oba was a, the Oba, in fact, escaped the the occupation of the city, but was later um, taken into British custody in, in September eighteen ninety seven, and he lived in exile in Old Calabar uh, until the rest uh, until he died uh, in nineteen fourteen. And then his son succeeded to the uh, to the kingship, uh, and was back in the, the rebuilt Benin city, but of course no longer as a sovereign ruler. I mean, he was now a kind of you know symbolic um, king with with no real power, and and that's what that's essentially the, the status of the. the the kingdom of Benin in modern-day Nigeria. You know, the the, the king still exists. There is still an Oba, and he still has great significance for uh, the Edo people, but he is no longer vested with formal powers, you know?
1: And yet the bronzes do continue to sort of have a life and a spotlight on them in a lot of ways um, up until the present day. And this in some ways sounds like a silly question because obviously in quite like on the face of it, the bronzes are spectacular for the detail of them and for the number of them, for the scale of things that they show. Um, But obviously with empire at that point, there are lots of sort of shiny things coming in from all over the place. And yet the bronzes really, you show kind of capture the imagination in a way um, pretty immediately and therefore sort of end up being desired objects by collectors museums etc and, and of course end up in the british museum where they are now so what do you think accounts for kind of their place in
0: yeah the imagination yeah. i suppose yeah well in the first place as you say it is a reflection of their extraordinary quality i mean the they're extremely beautifully made i mean through a uh you know through the lost wax process but the uh the the casting is really exquisite so it's a reflection of their extraordinary qualities but it's also i think because of the surprise it was quite shocking to all interested parties i mean to all you know curators and and so on uh, that work of this kind would come out of black africa and we can see how shocking it was for the british museum for example in the work of uh, the the two British Museum curators who were most involved with the the bronzes in the uh, in the early days, That's Dalton and Reed, uh, they received uh, a great many of the bronzes in uh, in the autumn of eighteen ninety seven, and they wrote an article in eighteen ninety eight, which was their first stab at analyzing and trying to understand the this extraordinary body of um, of work and it it's absolutely bizarre really I mean you know we I mean we would look back on this now as being absolutely bizarre but the conclusion that they came to was bizarrely this is so extraordinary I mean that you know the, these artworks are so extraordinary they couldn't possibly have made been made in Benin. Or they couldn't possibly have been made by the people of Benin. I mean, it's it's a bizarre kind of logic. But they were scrabbling around for explanations about how such sophisticated artwork could be made in somewhere like Benin. So they felt, well, it maybe maybe it was made by Egyptians. It must have been Egyptians, or maybe the Portuguese, because obviously the Portuguese had been on the, the coast of West Africa for, you know, for centuries. So they're scrabbling around for some explanation as to how these extraordinary artworks could have come out of West Africa. That um, it's, you know, it, it leads them to really bizarre, a bizarre kind of logic where, it, you know, they, they decide that they couldn't possibly have, possibly have been the people of Benin. They redeem themselves a little bit, however, in uh, 1899 when they published what became the standard work about the Benin bronzes for many years they produced a uh, a very richly illustrated book about the Benin bronzes and in that book they they finally they admit that they were they 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 had been wrong and that they these pieces are of Benin uh, um, manufacture and you know that their initial scrabbling around for other sources of origin were, were completely misguided. So they redeemed themselves a little bit, but it's, I I think it's a reflection of the extraordinary surprise um, at this new, altogether new body of work coming out of um, West Africa, which really forced a rethink about African art and culture. You know, that it, it really it forced uh you know a, a complete reassessment of um you know the, the the qualities and the potential of African art.
1: Thank you for explaining that, um, and that's obviously a really good example that demonstrates. This. That's exactly um, one of the things that was really captivating. Um, and speaking of surprises. Uh, I know we've already sort of talked about a few things that certainly surprised me as a reader and I can guess that they probably surprised you um, reading, for example, how little praised Phillips was by his own school, I'm sure was not what you were expecting. Um, but given, if if you have maybe one other example of something that you came across during the process that surprised you um, and be willing to share a little bit of that kind of behind the scenes
0: um, we'd love to hear it. Sure. I, actually, two things immediately occurred to me. Um, first of all, I touched very briefly on Consul Ainsley, George Ainsley, and his appalling wrongdoing um, in what is now Nigeria. Uh, finding all of that material was shocking. I mean, I'm, uh, and I would say that I'm fairly well versed in. Well, I thought I was fairly well versed in colonial violence and so on. You know, I'm not a. I don't think I'm. I don't think I was going into this um, naive about the meaning of empire. But I was still really shocked to find this deeply unpleasant um, series of incidents sitting there in the in the files. But what really shocked me was that I found indisputable written proof that the Prime Minister of the time, Lord Salisbury, knew about Ainsley's wrongdoing, knew about his orchestration of the gang rape of a a woman who was notionally under his protection, and yet conspired with Foreign Office officials to pension Ainsley off and and to avoid any potential for um, spoiling the reputation of British officials. I mean, as, as I say, I don't think that I went into this naive about, you know, the, the realities of empire. But that that still that's kind of shocked me. You know, the fact that the the prime minister even would rather uh, pension this guy off than see justice done. You know, that that was
1: or make any sort of acknowledgement. I mean, there's there's a lot you can do. For example um he can be dishonorably you know removed from his post and not get a state pension abs- even if abs- you don't make a big public case of it absolutely
0: there are, options. There are all sorts of things you can do um, but um yes he was uh, simply you know i mean th- this file of course this file full of sworn statements about this guy's wrongdoing you know was just quietly parked in the foreign office files and of course you know it 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 wouldn't be made public for several decades. And, you know, it was, um, yes, that that was all pretty shocking. Uh, but then the other thing that surprised me was that w- when I began work on this and began delving into the archives to, you know, look at the Foreign Office and the Admiralty archives for um, the, the details of the expedition, I was really surprised at how blatant, the violence was and and how casually it's recorded in the in the materials you know in the archives i mean there's no i mean very often there's no attempt to uh, you know to obscure violence through euphemism well I mean, there's uh, obviously constant use of these what i call the colonial lexicon of you know opening up or pacification and, and other kind of euphemisms. But what I found really surprising was explicit orders. For example, from Admiral Rawson, as I mentioned, he's the he was the commander of the expedition. Explicit written orders from Admiral Rawson to one of his officers. You know, you will advance up such and such a creek to Guato where you will destroy the town, <laughs> you know? And then a despatch coming back from Captain O'Callaghan saying, as instructed, I advanced up the creek to Guato, where I destroyed the town, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, it was just- the, Very
1: straightforward. Yes. No worries about diplomacy there or anyone taking you to task for your actions.
0: Absolutely. I just found that really surprising that it was so black and white. I mean, written down, you know, I did. I went there and destroyed the town, you know. Um, and so it was the, the casual- Um, approach to extraordinarily violent acts of collective punishment. You know, these are not military targets. You know, these are, uh, you know, this is regular burnings of villages and um, wholesale destruction of towns, which is undeniably a war crime under the, um, obviously under the Nuremberg principles of the United Nations, but even under um, protocols acting at the time in 1897. Uh, I mean, you know, this is this is extremely brutal collective punishment. Uh, so the, the casual way that this um, extreme violence was doled out and was talked about between British officials was a big surprise for me.
1: Fair enough. Um, It is very blunt. (laughs) Yes, Um.
0: and and I and I I made an effort to capture that in in the book because what what I wanted to do in the book was, I mean I I really made an effort to document everything you know minutely. I mean it's all you know very very carefully footnoted and I quote as much as I can from the original documents because you know it's one thing for you know progressively minded kind of uh, writer to to make a case against empire but it's i think more powerful if you can put it in the words of you know the officials at the time you know so the-
1: well and we've in fact demonstrated that in this interview right of you saying Phillips went and did this. I'm like, that seems really stupid. Why would he? And you're like, in fact, we have evidence that other people at the time who had vested reasons not to think he was stupid did in fact think he was quite done. So that's I think really and then that no longer is our extrapolation a hundred something years later about, hmm, was this person clever? It's like, well, actually, we've got rather a lot of evidence from the time, you know, as close as we can get to suggest that this isn't. Some supposition in hindsight, and um, that this actually was a thing
0: yes definitely and and that was I mean it was an unpleasant task in some respects to go through all this you know masses masses of documents because there are some very, very unpleasant things recorded in them, but it was very satisfying to take a a kind of forensic approach to you know to to putting it together from the original archives you know and reconstructing that that that's you know as as you know for a historian that's deeply deeply satisfying (laughs) yes Yes, we
1: do love finding the details in the archives so thank you for sharing some of those with us in the interview and obviously there's a lot more in the book um but the book is now obviously out and listeners can go read it so are you forensically are investigating something next what are you working on now
0: Oh sure. Well, I, actually, what I'm working on now is a book about empire film, and um, in in a way, this sort of grew out of my work on Benin because, as you may recall, in the book, you know, I touch on some of the representations of the invasion of Benin in the in the popular press, um, you know, how it was presented very much as you know the heroic. Brits going off to avenge uh, a wrong and you know. So I I became interested in how the British Empire has been represented. And I, I think there's some very interesting work to be done in how the British Empire has been represented in film. You know, I mean like take for example, I think there there is a an extraordinary number of British people who have formed their idea of the British Empire largely through repeated viewings of the film Zulu at Christmas. You know what I mean? You know, um,
1: Someone should probably go investigate that.
0: Right, because you know, if you think about the, the number of films that we have consumed in our lifetimes about either the British Empire or World War II, because I think... The way I look at it, I think, in a way, we as a nation we still celebrate World War Two. I mean, we over-celebrate World War Two as a a way of quietly celebrating empire. You know, because I think the two have become conflated in in our sort of celebrations of um, you know the the, the British past. Um, so I, I think we have to, you know, I, I think it's important, in fact, that you know, we, we rethink our idea of empire and World War Two through the, the popular medium of, you know, film.
1: Um, well, I'm sure yeah, there's a lot of good archives and details that you're going to uncover for us about that.
0: Absolutely. That, they will be. That That, that is exciting. Um, but I, I must say I will certainly be going back to uh, Nigeria and, and to British colonisation of Nigeria um you know in uh, in the in the future because there's so much more to be done um i mean what w- what i did for blood and bronze obviously that's just one campaign um you know the the british occupation of nigeria obviously was a, a matter of decades with a great many uh, so-called punitive expeditions or so-called patrols into the interior so there's, there's a great deal uh, more to be uncovered i think and no doubt a great many more instances of wrongdoing that need to be exposed
1: well while um you are off exposing wrongdoing and <laughs> uncovering details in film that cause us to question all sorts of interesting things um listeners can read your current book which we've been discussing this episode titled Blood and Bronze, The British Empire and the Sack of Benin, published by Hearst in 2022. Paddy Doherty, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Miranda, thank you for having me and thanks very much for your interest.